Mark chapter 15. Can't have believed that we're done Mark chapter 14, but we've been on this journey to Calvary, and I have been led each of these weekends to believe that there is no hurry, uh, particularly since there is so much information in front of us, and I believe a great many messages from the Spirit of the Lord. And so today we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 in Mark chapter 15. And early in the morning, now remember, the Lord Jesus has been arrested at this point. And early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him up to Pilate. And Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And answering, he said to him, it's as you say. And the chief priest began to accuse him harshly. And Pilate was questioning him again, saying, do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had delivered him up because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the multitude to ask him to re release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate was saying to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Father God, I do realize how holy your word is, and particularly on what holy ground we find ourselves over these weeks as we have been considering all the events on this long journey that our Lord Jesus suffered, even before he got to the cross of Calvary. And so, Lord, I just pray now that our hearts would be open wide and you would use this preacher and his voice, Father, by the anointing of the Spirit to claim your word faithfully and true. And we might all receive a word now, Lord, from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all learn lessons in life, don't we? It's a part of life. And during the years that we were serving the Lord as overseas missionaries, I learned a very hard lesson that I have since determined that I would never want to repeat on another person. You see, our family had undergone a severe difficulty that was, I'll put it this way, instigated by a rather unstable person who caused our family great harm. And later on, I was asked by those in authority what had happened to report on that. And in the process of doing that, I discovered that there was also another individual I had no idea about this, but there was someone else who was also waiting, shall we say, in the wings, who was also out to make our lives very, very difficult. Uh, that is the year I have referred to in past messages as the year I would like to forget, uh, the year I wish never happened. Many of us probably have a year or some time we wish never happened. But after those very grueling months that took a piece out of our family, our true friends stood by us, and what we found out and encouraged, actually by my brother-in-law, Doug, who has been here as a preacher, he said uh, the truth, 
will eventually come out. And all the false accusations were dismissed one by one as the truth came to light. And from that painful experience, because of what God had called us to be doing in church planting missionary ministry, I coined my own little phrase, and that was that God's church is born on a trail of tears, especially when that happens in very spiritually dark places. And I can tell you the last town that we were living in was a very spiritually dark place. And it's just utterly amazing by the grace of God. Uh, It just delights me to to no end to know that there is a church that has already worshipped today on the street corner. It's across the street from our landlord's pub. God has a sense of humor. It is to say, though, that human suffering, be it from persecution or false accusation, is never easy, is it? And it's particularly difficult if you find yourself in a situation that is blatantly unfair. Are you with me? Recently, a seasoned hospital nurse was telling my wife Linda and me about a person who had joined the nursing staff at her hospital. Over time, it became apparent that this individual had another agenda, and they began to sow seeds of lies and deception about other individuals on the nursing staff. And my sister told us that they began to tell the administrator about this, but nothing was being done. And then this individual began to saddle up to the, the hospital administrator. That was a very miscalculated decision because this individual then began to sow lies about the administrator. And so one day, my sister, as she's telling the story, says the administrator pulled her aside and says, I can't believe what has happened. This person's saying this about me. And my sister says, we told you, you're only getting what we've been getting for months from that person. Well, of course, being the administrator, he used his position of power to only transfer this troublemaker to another hospital. God bless them, wherever that is. But you know, haven't you at some point in your life found yourself in a similar circumstance? You find yourself on the wrong end of a deal. You find yourself left out in the cold. And for anyone who's been in any sort of leadership role, as they say, get used to it because it comes with the territory. Doesn't, though, make it any easier, does it? It can be especially painful when we're wrongly accused and And uh, when life seems to be unfair, that bothers us, doesn't it? We want justice. After all, someone uh, may may cause you to to lose a promotion or a pay raise or or even your job. There may be individuals, you don't know where they're from, how that ever happened, but they're out to ruin your your good reputation. And uh, these things, when they compound, what happens? It not only affects us emotionally, it can even affect our own physical health, can it? When these things weigh down on us. I... I googled this phrase. Now, as David, as I was mentioning about the podcast this morning, I'm realizing how old I'm getting because I don't really care about technology anymore. I just, it's gone so far beyond me. But as I googled, David, the fra- this phrase, jealousy led to his death. I hit it. In 48 seconds, it came back. Now, probably these are not all necessarily related equally the same. But here, get a load of this. In 48 seconds... Jealousy led to his death. I got back 39,600,000 results. I, I would say, I, I think some, this has probably happened once before, right? I've entitled today's message, if you haven't noticed yet, The Kangaroo Court, because that is what happened when the Lord Jesus stood trial. There is very definitely a vigilante spirit 
in Pilate's kangaroo courtroom as these religious prosecutors and false witnesses tried as hard as they could to throw the book, as they would say, at the Lord Jesus, who we all knew stood innocent of every crime. Of course, we first see there in verses 1 through 5, the principal charge. Was Jesus the king of the Jews? Now, keep in mind, our Lord had already suffered greatly even before getting to Pilate's courtroom. You might remember that on that night following the Passover celebration, Our Lord has already agonized over the events. And I believe this is a part of it, those events that he agonized over as he prayed in the garden. And you're reminded that he that as sweat poured from his body, it was mixed with blood because he was under such intense pressure. And this is a documented medical condition that his blood capillaries exploded beneath his skin under that extreme pressure. Judas Iscariot, of course, Though he had been privileged to be in the Lord's inner circle of the 12, he betrays his master with, of all things, a kiss, and then goes on to take his own life. I believe Jesus agonized over all these things. As you might remember, there was a brief skirmish in the Garden of Gethsemane where we learn from John's gospel that Peter pulls out his uh, trustworthy sword but only kind of misses a bit and just lops off the ear of that fellow Malchus. Of course, Jesus heals that man because it's not about someone else suffering. The Lord's going to suffer. And of course, upon his arrest, when Jesus is arrested, what, what happens with the disciples? They run in every which direction. Of course, let me just say, though Simon's going to deny the Lord, he still remains close by, doesn't he? Of all the disciples, Peter hangs around a bit, to see what's going to go on. And of course, we know that when the cock crows that second time, Peter is devastated. He weeps because he's denied the Lord. The very thing he said to Jesus, I'll never do this. And yet he did. My point is, and here's what I'm saying, is our Lord suffered long before he ever reached Calvary's tree. And we should be reminded of this, that everything that we're studying over these weeks, he endured, and unfairly so, but he endured those things for you and me. He was a silent lamb. Brother Ed Chatterton was telling me this just last weekend. Says, you know, our Lord was a silent lamb led to an unmerciful, painful slaughter. John's gospel also informs us that before Jesus ever got to Pilate, he, of course, was brought before the high priest. But actually, he was brought before two different high priests. Do you remember their names? Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest that was recognized by the Jews. He was the one that was first appointed. And if you were appointed the high priest, you were supposed to stay in that position for the rest of your life. But for whatever reason, the Romans replaced Annas with his son-in-law, Caiaphas. I'd like you, if you would, please turn over to John chapter 18, because these things lead up to our Lord standing before Pilate. John chapter 18, I'm going to pick up at verse 19. And what happens when the Lord is brought before these priests? John 18, 19, the high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow. Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I've spoken wrongly, 
bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? And then Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This suggests to me, by the way, when Jesus was first brought before Annas, that the Jews very obviously still recognized Annas as their rightful high priest. But it also suggests something else to me, that Annas just as much was behind Jesus being arrested, uh, that he was a part of the whole scheme to have the Lord Jesus killed. It is to say theologically that at the highest level of Israel's spiritual leadership, and here's the point, that the Lord Jesus was rejected by the top man. He was rejected by the nation of Israel's earthly shepherd, Annas, the high priest. Now from that garden and from being brought before Annas, he's then sent on to Caiaphas. And in Luke chapter 23, I don't know if you want to look it up, it's just a a couple of verses there, our Lord is brought before Caiaphas before he ever gets to Pilate. And in Luke 23, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the whole body of them arose, and then they brought him before Pilate and began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is what? Christ, a king. So there in Luke's gospel, we have the actual accusation. Jesus is telling people not to pay their taxes. Jesus is also telling people why he's, he's as high in office as Caesar himself. Jesus is claiming to be a king. So then in our text today in Mark chapter 15, verse 2, don't miss this. What was Pilate's question then to Jesus? He says, okay, I've heard this, right? He says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? That's a rather loaded question. And I would just suggest to you this, because when we hear this, are you the king of the Jews? We might begin to think theologically and biblically, but I'm telling you that when Pilate asks that question, he's not asking a theological question. He's not saying to Jesus, are you, by the way, the promised Messiah predicted in the Old Testament? No, Pilate's question isn't a theological question. It's a political question. How so? Because Pilate being a Roman governor, His whole job was to find out, is this Jesus a threat to Caesar's rule? Is Jesus perhaps going to lead his own insurrection? Is Jesus perhaps even a George Washington that's going to lead a revolt against the British? Or in this case, the Roman Empire? And so Pilate has every legal right if he can find out that Jesus, in fact, is up to doing that. And if so, he can have Jesus executed right on the spot. But here's the thing. This is the part that really struck me in my study this last week. It's how Jesus responds. Now, I read my Bible, New American Standard Version, just the way it's written. But let me read to you how Jesus responds from four different translations, Bible translations. Ready? You might have one of these. My New American Standard says, when, they, when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? New American Standard. And answering, he said, Jesus said to him, it is as you say. The NIV, if you have that, says, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The 1611 King James Version says, and, answer, and he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the English Standard Version, And he answered him, You have said so. Now, here's what's so fascinating about all these translations, because I, I have more to say about this. If you looked, particularly at the New American Standard, and the other translations don't necessarily do this, you would discover that some words are in italics. Whenever you see, the, see that in the New American Standard, that's telling you 
that those words don't actually appear in the original text. Now stay with me, I'm going somewhere with this. The translations I just read to you when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? All four translations, it is as you say, yes, it's as you say, thou sayest it, and you have said so, all communicate that Jesus is agreeing in the affirmative with Pilate's question, right? It is as you say. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, you've said it. But here's the thing. In the Greek language, there's actually only two words. They're in the original text. And those two words would simply be translated this way. You say. There is the subject you, and there is the verb, you grammarians and English teachers in school, the verb, the action word is they would say, you say. The word you is in a very emphatic position. It's actually in the translation there in, in its first in order, but it's also doesn't necessarily have to be there. But because it is, it's like if you've ever written a sentence and, and you just want to emphasize something, maybe you bold type it or you write, you know, Y-O-U, but you do it in capital letters, right? I do that sometimes in my notes, let me know. Uh, to be a little bit louder at that point or to emphasize something. The point is that actually Jesus isn't saying to Pilate, it is as you say. He's not actually agreeing per se with Pilate, though that's a way of translating it. But rather, he's, as Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you say. In other words, he doesn't actually answer Pilate. And I actually find that quite consistent with the whole context of the story because as Jesus is continually accused, he doesn't even answer. In other words, he's saying back to Pilate, you say, Pilate, do you find grounds to condemn me? You say. Another way we would write that is to say, you decide. You make, in other words, what do we call it? It's like tennis, right? Uh, The ball served you and then you you say, well, I'm going to whack it back to you. Now the ball's in your court. That's what Jesus is saying to Pilate. He's not going, he's not really saying it. Well, it's, it's exactly as you say. No, he's not saying, he's saying, ball served back to you. Ball's in your court, Pilate. Pilate, you say. What do you say about me? You see, Jesus only confessed to the, the Caiaphas that he was the Messiah, that he was the son of God. But Jesus never disclosed or defended his identity to the pagan Romans who participated in his death. Jesus never gave an answer. And furthermore, think about this. If Jesus had agreed to what Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Then right there, folks, Pilate would have had the number one reason for executing Jesus. In other words, Pilate would not have turned around and said to the crowd, I think this man's innocent. See how it's actually unfolding? And then, did you notice in verses four and five, look in your Bibles, it says, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? Now, you don't ask that question if you've already gotten an answer, right? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, and so that Pilate was amazed. Now, secondly, the insanity of this kangaroo court comes when Pilate, in verses 6 through 11, poses a choice. He says to those who are there, shall I release a murderer or shall I give you your so-called Messiah? There's another insertion of a text and I want us to read it. Would you please turn over to Luke chapter 23? Because in the midst of this questioning, 
And before even getting to the crowd and saying, shall I give you the murderer or shall I give you your, your king of the Jews here? In Luke 23, verse 6, Luke tells us, guess what? Something else happened. This, this shows what an absolute kangaroo court this was. Pilate discovers that Jesus, as he's been questioning him, comes from the home territory of none other than King Herod. And so therefore, Pilate sends Jesus at some point here off to King Herod, who, as it turns out, was in Jerusalem for the Passover. We pick up at verse 6. But when Pilate heard it, when he heard that Jesus, when he asked whether Jesus, the man, was a Galilean, and when he learned that he, Jesus, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, where he wanted to see him for a really long time because he had been hearing about him and he was hoping to see some sign performed by him. This is sick stuff, folks. Herod wants to be entertained by Jesus. And he questioned him at some length. Now notice this, church. He questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes, they're standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod, and this is the sickest part of the story, now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for they had been in enmity with each other. Terrible, terrible story. It's sick. Here are two politicians, and you probably get just as sick watching the television right now and all the stuff that's going on, right? Here are two politicians that are more concerned about scratching each other's back than determining the truth. And so from Pilate to Herod, Jesus is sent back to Pilate. And so Pilate now says to the crowd, do you want me to release this murderer Barabbas or would you rather let me, let Jesus go? Let me insert one other little detail here. Matthew 27, 19, I'll just read it for you. And while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife comes up to him. Hey, you know, hey, if she comes up, my wife is going to say, I'm going to listen. That's just how it works. That's why you're married for a long time. Yeah, at some point. And while Pilate's sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly. She calls it a dream. We could call it a nightmare because of him. Do you catch that? Uh, here's Pilate. Verse 10 tells us that he knows the Jewish leaders have brought Jesus before him because, what does it say? Out of envy, out of jealousy. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. King Herod, he couldn't even find a reason to execute Jesus. And now Pilate's own wife warns him, you better put Jesus at a distance from you. This is a kangaroo court if there ever was one. And thirdly, in verses 12 through 15, what happens? Instead, the crowds cry out, crucify him. And there's no better way to describe this, that this is a lynch mob. They're out for blood, not justice. Jesus wasn't given an opportunity to stand fair trial. Instead, this is a marauding band of executioners thirsty for the taste of the Lord's blood. And so they cry out. They cry out rather than saying, let Jesus go. They cry out, let Barabbas go. They shouted, verse 13, crucify him. And Pilate, of course, uh, he's, he's not convinced about who Jesus is and calling him king of the Jews. But look at what Pilate says again in verse 14. Why? Why? Why don't you want to let this man go free? What evil has he done? Do you see that? Right up to the end here. And no matter how the Romans are participating in this, he himself, Pilate, finds no reason for Jesus' execution. And yet what happens? 
what always happens in a kangaroo court. Pilate bows to the will of Jesus' executioners, as verse 15 says, to satisfy the crowd. And I'll tell you what a sham it was. If I could just read from Matthew 27, verse 24. And when Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing, but rather than a riot starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the multitude saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it to yourselves. In other words, what did Pilate do? He took the easy way out, didn't he? And all the people answered. And I'll tell you something. I read here, I think to myself, man alive, I would not have been one of those people. Those people answered Pilate, who's washing his hands. And they say to him, his blood be upon us and on our, ch- on our children. And I'll tell you, I don't think they had any idea what judgment they were bringing upon themselves when they said that. But here's the thing. Do you remember what Jesus said on Calvary? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so he releases Barabbas. Jesus is scourged, and he's delivered to be crucified. You've heard me use the phrase kangaroo court many times in this message. A kangaroo court may be a legal court held by a legitimate judicial authority, but one who intentionally disregards the court's legal or ethical obligations. What about Pilate? Pilate was a legal Roman governor. He had the power to hold trial. He had the power to declare a just judgment. But in the final analysis, Pilate perverted true justice. But beloved, for us, through the the justice of God, though for us, was satisfied by the blood sacrifice of God's only begotten Son. It is to say everything about this trial that Jesus was as innocent as innocent could be. He was truly the holy, innocent, perfect, and pure Son of God. These messages over these weeks have reminded me that Jesus' journey to Calvary was no Caribbean cruise. There was no Rocky Mountain High. There was no yodeling in the Alps. Our Savior was plunged to the depths of despair for you and me. I don't say that to depress us or to purposely make us feel badly, but to remind us of how great his love and mercy must be towards us, how much our God must love us. But pity for the person who, as it says in the book of Hebrews, tramples underfoot the Son of God and insults the Spirit of grace. What amazes me is, despite the fact this was a kangaroo court, God in his sovereignty still used the evil intentions of men to accomplish his perfect and good will. And to all those things, I say, to God be the glory, great things he has. Has done. Father, we bow in adoration of your sovereign grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. And we confess that there was nothing fair or just in the trial, the torment, and the suffering of your Son, except that it magnifies your glory, your mercy, and your grace. And Father, forgive us again for being children who so often fail. Thank you, Lord, for your restorative grace. We glorify your most holy name in Jesus' name. Amen.